Cast. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 92 of the Bird and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest uh, comes to us from our friends over at Interview Valet, and his name is Eli Smith. Uh, now, in this one, you'll see the bio, I guess you'll hear the bio, uh, after the stinger, uh, but just wanted to say real quick, this is a great discussion I had. Eli is an outstanding entrepreneur creating great opportunities uh, for a lot of underserved uh, populations through his businesses. So really take some time and listen to what Eli has to share and has to offer for you know for your businesses as you're looking to make an impact on the communities that you serve. Eli's really kind of paved the way for that. So with that, I'm going to be quiet, get out of your way, and let you listen to this outstanding interview with Mr. Eli Smith. All right, everybody, hello and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Uh, today's guest is Eli Smith. Eli founded and runs successful businesses in construction and real estate development. He is committed and energetic entrepreneur, and he is following in the footsteps of his parents who were successful business owners for over 40 years. Eli has been recognized by Governor Cuomo for his entrepreneurial spirit and achievement in contracting, and he is passionate about giving back to his community through mentoring students and recognizing and empowering minority and women-owned businesses. Eli, sir, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Earl, for that warm introduction, and thank you for having me as a guest on your great show. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I am really looking forward to uh, really looking forward to the discussion we're about to have here. I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. You've got a lot of great experience to share. Uh, but I want to start you off at the same spot where I start off all my guests. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that phrase mean to you? Great question. Burden of command uh, for me means two words, uh, servant leadership. So I believe, um, and I was always taught that in order to be an effective leader, uh, you know, whether it's in the military or whether it's in business or whether it's on the, on the football field or in the sports, wherever it may be, um, standing out there alongside, you know, your fellow teammates or your fellow workers, um, and, and understanding what their needs are, um, and then being a leader in that way and explaining to them whether, that you have been in their position before, right? And, and coming from a place of humility, honesty, and integrity um, is how you get, and how I found that you get the best employees or the most out of people um, to work alongside you. Mm. No, I love that. And, and so for folks who are paying attention, you know, during the introduction, uh, you're mainly in the construction and real estate spaces. And, uh, you know, a lot of people you know, kind of when they think about leadership and, and leading other people, they really think about like white collar type jobs. Uh, but it's just as important when you're leading uh, laborers and and trade skill type people as well, right? 100%. So I, I always wear, I always say to when we have our management meetings, you know, whether I'm meeting with a client or I'm meeting internally with my team, um, we I didn't always wear you know, dress slacks or a suit every day, right? I, I come from humble beginnings. I started working for my father's company at the age of 13, and he had a janitorial business, so, and a carpet cleaning company, uh, which evolved later on, you know, 10 years later, evolved into a mechanical company. So, but from the age of 13, when he started bringing me to different projects or different jobs that he had, um, I was cleaning toilets, wiping down sinks, emptying trash. Um, and he always made sure that I, I understood the value of a dollar, right? And I remember um, he would bring me in different meetings um, and learning about the value of a dollar. And mind you, uh, my father, he's passed away, but he had a ninth grade education. And I remember when he started getting into that construction world, as far as cleaning out mechanical ductwork, and I was like 18 or 19 at that time, and we would go to different business meetings and sit in boardrooms. I remember certain general contractors or owners would be would say to him, 
um, you know, Jim, this contract is worth $50,000 or this contract is worth a hundred thousand, whatever amount it was. And he would say, no, that's not true. Um, I'm not going to accept this because the reason why he would say to me later on was Eli, we can't accept that because we didn't do the takeoff. We didn't, we don't know the value of that. They're telling us what they want to give us. So what that in turn taught me, Earl, was at a very young age, I knew I had to um, understand how the value of a dollar work, how the value of, of understanding our overhead, understanding our business model, and making sure that we were paid, you know, um, accordingly for each project that we did. So um, a lot of times I've noticed with small businesses, um, Earl, is that um, when you know, small businesses, especially when they're doing state work, I call it um, the race to being broke, right? Because mm-hmm. what the state does or different municipalities do in the public sector is they go with the lowest bidder, right? right. And it doesn't give you a chance to really, you can have the top employees or have be the top company for services in your city, but if you really price it that way, you're going to... Um, be, you know, you're going to lose because you're going to have somebody who underbids you. And so you're going to have to take a loss just to win that contract. So um, understand the value of the dollar, understand the value of your business and and understanding um, what you're, you really need to make on each project is where I I believe that small businesses, we need to understand in small, medium-sized companies. Yeah. And I love what you said there about the contracts, because it's one of the things, you know, being, uh, former active duty Marine, uh, me and my buddies, we always joke where we see a commercial that talks about uh, military grade equipment, because we know that what that really means is, well, that was the cheapest equipment available on the market, <laughs> thanks to the bid. Uh, and so, you know, it's important. And, and I think it's one of the things that, uh, you know, working with the entrepreneurs that I've worked with, uh, I see a lot of that mistake as they get their business going, you know, they've got a, they got a great idea. They got a great concept, but really understanding those inner workings of, you know, how to price themselves, how to situate themselves in the market. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks, and sadly they don't do a great job of teaching these types of financial, basic financial systems uh, in elementary and high schools anymore. These entrepreneurs just really aren't equipped with those skills that you're talking about, right? A hundred percent. I agree with you, Earl. One of the things that um, I think, you know, along your points is um, where small businesses need to do a better job, no matter if you're a female or male or what, what race you are, you know, we need to do a better job of understanding our clients, right? And understanding what our clients' needs are and wants when they ask us to perform a service or provide them with a product. Um, a lot of times we go in there saying, this is what I'm going to give you, and you're going to have to take it this way. And that doesn't work for every client, right? Um, so I, I find that when, when I speak to different small businesses, um, some small business owners um, come in with the idea that this is the way I've always done it. They've been in business for 20, 25 years, and I meet with other business owners that been in business for, you know, far less than that other business owner. Say business owner A has been in business for 25 years. Business owner B has been in business for a few relative short years. But the difference between the two is business owner B listens and he asks the questions of what that client really is asking of them. And then he goes back and then he, you know, sends out a proposal meeting those particular um you know, metrics or whatever they are to make sure that client is happy, right? And satisfied. Um, And the other point I want to bring out, Earl, is um, we as small business or medium-sized companies, um, I always say, you know, let's use a company like Roto-Rooter, for instance, right? Roto-Rooter is a national plumber, right? And then you might have another plumber, Bob the Plumber, that's in a small city. Now, Bob the plumber might be the best plumber in that city, but nobody knows about him. They automatically call Roto-Rooter because why? Because Bob the plumber may may be always out doing the jobs, right? He may mm-hmm. be swinging the, the hammer or using his wrench and putting on toilet and sinks and doing everything else, but he's lacking in the marketing piece. 
he may be a 10 times better plumber than Roder Ruder, but if he doesn't understand and get out and know how to market his business, he's never going to be able to scale his company. As, and that's what we're all here for, right? We're here to make money. So um, you have to understand your business and, and understand, take courses on how do you market? How do you brand your company? How does, you, how does every big business at one point was a small business? So how did they get to that next level? How did a $5 million company get to 10? How did 10 get to 20? And, and you know, um, you know, technology is always changing. And so is marketing and branding of your company. So you need to always be out there trying to understand how to get your message out so that those decision makers can see your company. Yeah, no, and I think that's extremely valuable advice. It reminds me of, uh, you know, I was reading a while back, uh, you know, now, like you mentioned with the way technology is, search engine optimization is kind of the big keyword. But before we had search engines, and I know some of our listeners here may not remember this old school technology, but we had yellow pages. And they were talking about if you if you look, one of the reasons why a lot of like local mom and pop shop type businesses, you know, triple A uh, rotor or, you know, triple A plumbing or triple A pest control is because that was, quote, the old school uh, search engine optimization. Triple A got you listed first alphabetically. And that was where most people were likely to, you know, start calling is whatever they saw first. They wanted to be at the top of that list, just like SEO is right now. And, and so there's, you know, like I said, there's a lot of value there of what uh, what Eli is just saying, because it doesn't matter what time period you're in. It doesn't matter what the technology is. The person who figures out that trick to be the first person uh, that people see is usually the business that does the best, right? Correct. Correct. And that's 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 the long and the short of it. We, we have to take those courses we had to you know either hire a company to handle our marketing or branding or um we had to do it ourselves right that's a simple that's a simple answer to it yeah no i like that so uh one of the things that uh you believe and 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 i love this uh love this belief is that that uh, contractors should provide a work environment that creates a better future for all why do you believe so strongly in that Wow. Well, um, I myself have always come from a place, you know, where I always want to give back. Right. And um, and always want to bring those that are less fortunate um, and bring them along for the ride. Right. And open their eyes to what hard work or what building great relationships with other people or other companies can do for you. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of is my company. Um, all of my companies, we call them the United Nations, right? And there's a reason why. We're known for that. Um, we have offices in upstate New York and, and three different cities in New York. And then we have another office in Washington, D.C. And the reason why we're successful is because, as I always say, we look like the, what the United States look like. So we have people within our company who are from China, from Afghanistan, from um you know, of course, you have blacks and whites, and we have um, people from India. So we're we're well represented on what the United States of America looks like, right? So um, I take a lot of pride in that, and you know. So with that being said, um, with that variety of people, we get a strong influence. So our our management meetings are so enlightening and strong because there's so many different viewpoints on how we can satisfy that client. Right. And so some of the, the my management who came from Afghanistan, who may have came from China, they're, they're bringing in, you know, wisdom and knowledge and how things were done overseas and bringing it here. And we're trying to bring that and incorporate that. So that's on one level. On another, another level, which I'm also proud of, is um, the, the we've all heard of school to prison pipeline. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, with that school to prison pipeline, there's that reintroduction from the prison that we need to help ones when they come out of, you know, um, whatever they may have done, whatever mistakes they have made in their former, you know, when they're younger life, right? right. Former years. So one of the things that we do is we try to work with the community and hiring different laborers that are trying to be reintroduced 
into the workforce and we teach them trades and we work with a union and then they came about. And many of those individuals have been with my companies for a number of years and now are in management, right? So um, they may have um, committed a crime, you know, um, not not a hard crime, right? I'm right. be clear about that, but they may have committed a crime um, that today may be legal, <laughs> right? In, mm-hmm. in certain states, right? Um, and you can read between the lines and now they may have served three or four years and now they have this, you know, this black cloud over their head and, you know, they, some of these individuals are really hardworking people and just need an opportunity. And so we gave them that opportunity. And because of that, the communities that in which we serve have recognized us. We've won multiple state, national awards, even humanitarian awards. Um, one of the awards we won last year was the Harriet Tubman Award. We won the Martin Luther King Award for, uh, you know, for for our companies um, here locally. You know, so that's what I'm really most proud of, right? Is just um, being able to give back to the community in which we serve and, and, and hire people from within those communities. Mm, no, I love that. I love that. And just... You know, to give our listeners kind of a, a frame of reference here, uh, we're recording this in early February. You know, by the time you're listening to this, it's probably going to be mid-April. Uh, you know, but this is African American History Month, and uh, this month's or this year's theme, I should say, is the Black Family Representation, Identity, and Diversity. And, you know, what Eli is saying here ties in very well with that theme of African-American History Month, because, you know, some of these things that that he's talking about here, uh, you know, these are things that have a a major impact, sure, on all families. uh, But as as Eli said, with some of the laws that have been in the books and have changed over the years, you know, they have very much disproportionately impacted uh, the black family using the theme. And... You know, as, as a, a black business owner in America, um, I, you probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you probably feel a, a kind of a, a burden, going burden of command, uh, to try to help provide those opportunities to kind of close those gaps a little bit, I'd imagine, right? Yes. Um, Earl, you had it right on the head. Like, one of the things, um, I was asked last, about a month ago, to speak in front of the um, the House and in front of the Senate um, to speak about small businesses and the perils because of COVID and what's happening. Um, it was I was asked to Goldman Sachs and I used that opportunity to speak about the perils of what's happening in upstate New York. So um, in Syracuse, New York, for instance, uh, one of the cities in upstate New York um, is top five in poverty, has been for the last six years. It was number one in poverty um, you know, for two years straight. So I spoke about that in front of the Senate and said, listen, we need help. Um, we need, you know, change. Like so many families, 47% of, for instance, this is a sobering fact, 47% in Syracuse, New York, of individuals that have a bachelor's degree are making less than $25,000 a year. Mm-hmm. How can you provide for a family of four when you're making less than poverty, right? right? And this is directly affecting um, black families, black and brown families in, in Syracuse, New York. In addition to that, we have more blight homes. And I'm explaining it for those of your listeners that don't know what a blight home is, just basically a boarded up home. So we have more people that have moved out of the city because of redlining that happened 40 or 50 years ago and now living in the suburbs. And now there's no taxes that are being paid for these homes. These are the homes that were at one at one point that were beautiful homes, you know, um, single family homes because you know Syracuse used to be big in the manufacturing industry. And when Chrysler pulled out and GM pulled out, um, with that went all those jobs, right? So what you're left with is families that doesn't have um, didn't know how to pass on to their kids or grandkids you know, jobs or, or any trades um, where they can pass on. And, and so you have um, in Syracuse now what's happened is there's a bunch of families that are starving and looking for opportunity and there's no opportunities for them. So I'm taking this opportunity to introduce and go to different schools as well as my management team to go to different schools and say, listen, 
before you go to college, look at becoming a plumber, look at becoming an electrician, or look at you know becoming a even a driver um, or a you know or a construction truck, eight or twelve or sixteen wheeler, right, and, and driving that. So. You know, we're trying to do what we can to try and change, um, no matter what cities in which we serve. But it's, it's going to take all of us to do that, right? White, yeah. black, brown. We all have to work together and not wait for policy, right? I don't care. A lot of people think that, and I want to say this, Earl, a lot of people think that we have to wait on politicians to pass policies, right? We don't have to wait on policy to show that I love or that we care about our fellow man, Right. Right. Like, that's a human trait. Like, I could look you in the face, Earl, and say, I want to see your family do well. And Earl, you could look back in my face and say, Eli, I want to see your family do well. We didn't have to wait for any policy to do that. We had to just take that, you know, and do that amongst ourselves, right? And, um, you know, that's what I just want to say. You know, that's the reason why I'm even giving back by one of the things Earl I talked to you about earlier, um, and your listeners can look at, is the, the Dream Summit. And that if you visit www.mydreamsummit, you'll see that there's no, this is an event that's happening in August of this year. The mission of this Dream Summit is to bring in entrepreneurs of black, brown, men and women. And, you know, and we're going to have Fortune 500 companies that are there that talk about their diversity and inclusion and what they're doing in uh, communities such as Syracuse all across the country and how they're trying to improve. Um, you know, the, the livelihood of these individuals. And then we have other keynote celebrities such as Michael Eric Dyson, who will be attending, Jamel Hill. We're going to have Soledad O'Brien, the CNN reporter who left CNN and, and to speak about her time when she used to work within the White House and see, you know, talk about that during the Trump era and see what, you know, hear her. So we're, we're doing, I'm doing that to hopefully enlighten individuals, um, to say, hey, there is another way out of what we're currently living in. In addition to that, the Dream Summit, we're going to give out awards to businesses that normally wouldn't get awards. So we're going to give out awards such as the Top Hairdresser Award, the Top Barbershop in the community, um, the Top Architectural Firm, to name just a few, you know, Top Boutique. Or, so we're going to do different things like that to try and spearhead an initiative to help businesses and people look at entrepreneurship and, and, and get into it and understand they can really, you know, take the steering wheel and command their car without waiting for somebody else to do it for them. Mm, no, I love that. I mean, I love everything you just said. And, you know, for folks that are listening, look, uh, you know, some of the stuff that Eli said there, you know, it, it may make some folks a little uncomfortable to hear, but this is why uh, American history is important. This is why African-American history is important. And this is why when you hear words like systemic racism uh, in America, you have to really understand what that means. And, you know, Eli mentioned the words redlining, and it's it's amazing how many how many people don't know what that was. And, you know, the, the very short version of that is literally when banks were looking to give out loans in communities, they had maps with red outlines around certain communities that were considered, you know, high risk and either extremely high mortgage rates or just no mortgages were given, which created these pockets of poverty, uh, which created the communities that we have today because of a, a systemic a policy in the system. And, you know, those are just now starting to kind of come to light. And it's amazing. I was talking with a lady who um, was working with a firm in Colorado, it was a mortgage brokerage firm, and they they had caught a uh, an EEO complaint about uh, discriminatory lending practices, and their argument was, well, look, we're not we're not discriminating. This is what our data shows. These neighborhoods are bad investments, and they had no clue that that data that they were using rooted in this redlining practice, like you mentioned, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And, and that education piece is huge and closing that gap and getting people to understand, you know, when we say systemic racism in America, we're not meaning necessarily every person is racist, but we've had policies in the past that have been specifically designed to have a negative impact on black and brown families. And, 
changing those policies is going to be a huge step. But as Eli mentioned, we don't need to wait for policies. You can be like Eli and go out and make that change because entrepreneurship in this country is like the fastest vehicle for moving from class to class to class, right? Yes. Yes. Entrepreneurship is, uh, you know, the piggyback on what you just said, Earl, I, I just, before we move away from that subject, there's even in the construction world, right? So if you go back to slavery times, and this is, you can do your research on that, uh, on this point I'm about to bring up. There was a time when, after the slavery time, when black businesses and, and black people and brown people were trying to, you know, even immigrants are trying to get you know, themselves their footprint and trying to understand how to navigate. The, the white males in this country was sending out contracts that the black person could not read, right? Because even though they were out of slavery, as we know, slavery, one of the things is while you're in slavery, you, you were not allowed to know how to read. So they were putting in these contracts, language in there, that they didn't know how to read or one they couldn't comprehend. They were using these big letter words. And basically, the slavery was continuing on and on because they were getting these contracts to say, go build a building or go build this house. And basically, you were doing it for less than what the wages, the applicable wages should be, appropriate wages should be, right? right. So then the federal government passed a law that says, listen, you, when you write a contract, it took like 50, 60 years, but so 50, 60 years, it didn't even level the playing field. It wasn't going to level the playing field even close, right? We're still trying to level the playing field in 2021. But um, so, that you know, when we talk about systematic racism, it's continued on, right? But going back to what I was saying and what you were saying, Earl, we don't have to wait the policy for policy to do this for us. Because even if you look back even at slavery times, I'm sure there was some good white developers or white businessmen that did not take advantage of black people back then and said, I'm not going to give you this contract. I know that you can't read. I know you can't comprehend it. I'm not going to take advantage of you. I don't have to wait for a law that says this contract should be written in your favor or be written in such you mutually, we both mutually benefit from it. So that's what I always go back to, like going back to that human decency, right? And I believe that's part of being a good leader is um, human decency, inspiring others um, being honest and, and having some integrity and empathy, all those different things that, you know, I, I believe that we as humans all have within us, right? Yeah. And um, policy is not going to make somebody love someone or all of a sudden because they pass a law, right? That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. It has to be in us right now to say, listen, you have been for years and your family and your grandparents have been you know, oppressed or, you know, been treated as less than, but I'm going to do my part. And that's all we're, you know, that's all that I'm trying to do is, is trying to make sure that I pay it forward for all people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and anybody who has uh, run a business or ran a team, led a team knows what Eli's saying is true. You know, even if you don't look at it from the race standpoint, if you look at it at a pure culture standpoint, uh, let's be honest, policy usually has that opposite effect because people don't like being told that they have to, you know, respect the people they work with. They don't like being told that they have to not gossip. They don't like to be told, they don't like to be told a lot of things. The companies that are successful are the ones that don't need the policy. They've created a culture where that's just the ex, uh, the accepted and expected behavior. And, and yeah, so waiting for policy, in my opinion, I'm agreeing 100% with, Eli, with you here, Eli, is, is it's bad practice because, you know, we've, we've got all the laws on the books. We've got all the policies. Really, we've got all the policies on the books that we need. We just got to create that culture with what Eli said, is looking at each other as, you know, fellow man, and, uh, you know, lifting everybody up because the truth is, and, and I'm sure you've seen this in some of the communities that you've worked with, when we, when we pay attention to those, uh, I'll use the word you use, blinded communities, it raises everything around it, right? So everybody benefits. Yes. Yes. 
And then when everybody benefits, we all win. Right. Right. And that's what we're all here to do. And, and I remember, um, I remember that uh, one of the things that one of the times I, I will say this, I went to a meeting about um, it was about four months ago. I was in a meeting with a general contractor and, and uh, on this particular project, we were a subcontractor. And the owner of this company said to me, you know, um, basically we were having a discussion about change orders. And he said to me, Eli, is it possible, you know, that you could take less on this change order? Because my my wife, he goes to me, has dreams. And, and I said, <laughs> why would I take less? Don't you think my wife and my children have dreams as well? So you want me to, you know. And so when I said that to him, you could see him squirm in his chair a little bit. And he was, you know, it made him feel uncomfortable. And then we came to an agreement. But it was just that whole entitlement attitude. He was in his 60s and he thought that his wife and his children were worth more than my wife and my children, right? Or that their dreams was better than my dreams. So, uh, you know, so it's, it's just I take every moment I can as a teachable moment, either for myself to learn from someone else um, or for me to, you know, input some wisdom or make them feel make them squirm a little bit in their own conference room. No, I, I love that. As you, as you were telling that story, I was over here uh, with a big grin on my face. Cause uh, you know, I think uh, you, you might be my spirit animal over here. Cause you know, I've used that same line before uh, mainly at car leaderships. You know, I get the, you're, you're taking food off of my kid's plate. I'm like, well, that's exactly what's happening. If I pay the higher price to you. So, you know, let's, let's, let's negotiate here. Um, and you know, and, but that's, I think that's the thing with most things, right? Is when two people can sit down and listen to each other from a point of mutual respect, you can find that middle ground where, uh, where it's workable for everybody. Um, and, and that's the important piece that I think, you know, we've been missing in this country for, for quite a while is, is being able to find that middle ground. What do you say? A hundred percent. Um, I, I agree with that. We have to be able to find that middle ground and we have to be able to communicate we, we, you can't win on every project, every project or every contract. Um, you can't hit a home run on and you have to be happy sometimes with a single. You have to be happy, comparing this in baseball terms. Sometimes you got to take a walk. Sometimes you got to steal second. Sometimes you're going to hit a double. Sometimes you're going to hit a triple. But, you know, and sometimes you might strike out, right? But when you okay. strike out and you go back and you go home that night, you know, strikeouts for me, is the best thing, right? Because I love the challenge of coming back the next day and saying, okay, we lost on this one, but, you know, um, we're going to win on the next one. And I always say to, no matter what level you are within my company, whether you're, you know, a laborer or a carpenter or, uh, you know, in senior management, no matter what level or position you hold within my companies, you know, I, I empower them by saying, no matter what decision you make today, good or bad, the company would not be closed tomorrow. So it gives them freedom to to think out there when they're in the field or when they're in the office and, and make decisions that they feel is best for the company. So I'm trying to develop them, even though all the employees, all, all my fellow teammates, and I say to them, to think of themselves as, as an entrepreneur and that they have ownership in this company that they're working for as well. Well, let, let's continue that sports analogy here for a second there, Eli, because as you mentioned, you know, to strikeouts are just as good. You know, you learn something from those singles. Uh, but, but to get in any of those situations, you have to at least step up in the batter's box, right? And that means you've got to be willing to get out there and take chances. So why why is it important for entrepreneurs to not be afraid to take those chances? Why is it important? Well, um, first off, I, I always say if you want to become an entrepreneur, there's a level of uh, craziness you have to have within you, right? Because <laughs> it's not a it's not an easy it's not an easy job, and it's not. Um, so first off, you, there's no there's no net, as I always say, for us entrepreneurs out there. There's no one that's going to catch us when we fall, right? Um, mm-hmm. Someone who's an employee, they know every single week they're going to get that weekly paycheck. As an entrepreneur, as the saying goes, you can only eat what you kill, yeah. right? So if we take off a day well, or a week or a month, and we know that following month or week or day, 
we're not going to be eating as much as we could have, right? Or could have. So um, being an entrepreneur, we have to look for the right sources of um, uh, of people that um, can give us support. Uh, is what I'm looking. For, the word I'm looking for. So a lot of times, I find that entrepreneurs look for their husband or for their wife or their girlfriend or you know or a significant other to give them support. Actually, the person or the people who are going to give you the most support is going to be a fellow entrepreneur, someone who's been through that same challenge that you're about to go through, right? Someone who may not have had money that week for payroll or someone who may not have had any income for a month, but is going to say to you, listen, hang in there, right? Because a husband or wife, because they love you, what are they going to say? Listen, give up on your dreams. Go get you a job. This is not working out for you. And you're like, and in your head, you're like, I'm this close to turning the corner or I'm this close to landing this big contract. And they might not see that. They might not understand that your vision, you know, and, and it's not because they don't want to. It's just because you're wired differently than they are. Right. So and it's OK, because as I said, when I first started, you know, being an entrepreneur, you have to have a level of risk, a high level of risk. This is right. And. Every day there's a there's a risk that you you know banks are going to tell you no. Um, every <laughs> our our capture rate when we turn in a proposal for a job might be less than ten percent, you know, might be up to twenty percent, but you're not going to get you know a hundred percent on every proposal you turn into a client. So there's so many different variables that are are weighted against you that you have to have a level of you know what. I need a support system and my support system that has got to be outside of my family, you know, um, most times, right? Unless you, you're married to a fellow entrepreneur. That's what I find is that when people give up on their entrepreneurial dreams, it's usually because someone that was close to them told them to, and they gave up just a little bit too soon. Yeah, no. And what you just said right there, I think is the uh, kind of the, the hidden superpower right now with some of our, uh, kind of underserved populations is, you know, it, it's, it's a lot easier. And I want to make sure I'm saying this right. So when people understand exactly what I'm trying to say here, it's a lot easier to take those risks when you don't have a lot to lose. It's a lot harder to step up there when you do, as you mentioned, you have the family, maybe you have the kids and, and you have a steady job and you want to be an entrepreneur, but it's too scary to give up that day job. You know, and I think that we're we're going to see, and we, from what I've noticed, we have seen a major rise in in minority and women owned entrepreneurship, uh, mainly for that reason that that they you know have very little or, or nothing to lose, and so they're able to go all in and really know, as you said, that you if you don't kill something you don't eat, and they're out here killing it day in and day out right now, and it's a great thing to see, right? Right, yeah. you know, and you look at you know our, one of the top billionaires, Jeff Bezos, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so buying books and then sending books to people's homes, and now look where Amazon is today, right? You know, right. just you, you know, very empowering story, right? And just think about how even Warren Buffett didn't make his first million to the age of fifty-two, and look where he is today. So he didn't give up on his dream. So you're never too old to ever reach out to try and achieve your dream in the entrepreneurial world. And, and um, you just got to align yourself and believe in yourself first. Right. And, and that's where it starts. And once you do that, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. There's no greater reward for myself um, than every Friday handing out paychecks to my employees and knowing that, you know, I, I contributed to them, you know, um, in, in, as much as they have contributed to me and, and you know, both, you know, vice versa in, in their family life and in their successes and hearing, you know, what they're about to do on their vacation or the new home they're about to go purchase or, you know, what they're going to do with their bonus check, you know, that they earned. Those things are so empowering for me. And, and for us to be able to still be in business when 50% of Black-owned companies um, have went out this year because of COVID, right? In the last twelve months, and, and for um, for our business to be still here and growing, 
is not because of anything I'm doing special because trust me, I'm not special. I'm just, I just put together a team and the team is working well together. Right. And I just, you know, you know, of course I learned about how to assemble a team throughout the course of years that I've been doing this, but, um, you know, the success comes from my employees that work with me every day. They're the ones that get all the praise. Well, sir, I'm, I'm going to go in on a limb here and say you may be just a little bit more special than you give yourself credit to because uh, you're, you're doing a lot of great things out there. So, uh, you know, I, I love the humility there, but, you know, give, give yourself a pat on the back. You, you're pretty doggone special, I do believe. I, I love what you're doing. I love the, the uh, you know, civic-minded mission behind it. And, you know, I love, you know, kind of what you've shared so far about your story and kind of your, your path a little bit and, and where you're at now with how your organization has embraced uh, diversity and inclusion uh, in the workplace. Um, you know, but those are things that not a lot of entrepreneurs, just because they have so many plates spinning already, you know, kind of think of that, that long-term objective and may not really understand the importance of diversity and inclusion as they're getting their business up and running. Uh, but why should they? Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I think that diversity and inclusion is key, right, to to us for so many reasons, right, besides just on the economic change, but really on the social change, right? So I always say when I speak at different conferences that social change cannot happen without economic change. So one is one is they both tie hand in hand with each other. We can't talk about raising capital and families and homes and you know within certain communities um, without addressing the social issues that's going on. So if we address social issues, um, one of the biggest ones is unemployment and um, black and brown communities. How do we do that, right? So um, if you as a, are as a new entrepreneur or even as if you are a hiring manager in a major company, um, you can do more. Right. And, if you know, I, I, one of the things that I hate, I hate when I hear this, I, I speak to different businesses um, that may have 500 employees and 485 of them are, are white males. Right. Or 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 it does not represent what this country truly is. And I speak to, you know, to those leaders and I say, why? Oh, well, nobody applies. Or, or I, I, you know, one was an accounting firm and uh, accounting firm. And, and he said to me, um, why well, he, he attempted to say to me, I, I, we've tried, we tried to find some black accountants in the area and nobody ever replies. And I was like, well, you know what you need to do? You need to go out and get a bigger net. That's what you need to start fishing with a bigger net because whatever you're doing does not represent. So I'm not going to accept that um, you cannot find someone that looks like me to work within your firm. And I gave this particular company 30 days. And I said, if we don't, if you don't find anybody and, and I don't feel that you have. And I said, I need to see real metrics that are being met. Then I'm going to take my businesses and we're going to go somewhere else. And so as an entrepreneur, I see all that to say you have power, right? So where you choose to spend your dollar, whether it's with a marketing company or an accounting firm or a legal company, um, if they're not doing the things that uh, you know um, don't have the same principles and values that you have as an owner, take your money and take it somewhere else. A hundred percent. And I hate hearing that excuse as well. I mean, you know, having a few friends at, at HBCUs, you know, uh, Spellman, Howard, uh, uh, Jackson State, you know, those places are chock full of talent. And, you know, the sad truth is, while you, as Eli pointed out, a lot of companies think that they're doing everything they can to recruit. Those universities will tell you that they don't get the same level of participation in like job fairs and things like that as other universities do. So if, if you're not going into HBCUs and trying to recruit, you can't say that you tried to recruit uh, people of, of color into your organization. Yeah, it's, it's, it, we just got to challenge them, Earl. Yep. We, we just can't accept, you know, their, their excuses, right? You know, the same way, you know, um, if you're hungry, you're not going to just sit in your chair in the living room and say, well, I'm hungry and nobody else is in the house and say, well, Oh, somebody comes and brings me food 
<laughs> right? No, what you're going to do is get up and go in the kitchen and go find something to eat, right? Yep. And so if you truly want to help and make a difference, that same analogy has to be used. Or if you really want to see some diversity, no, you have to go to an HBCU. You have to go and, you know, and go into communities that you may, that, and maybe in the 70 years that your firm may have been around, you may have to do something different. You have to go against the grain, right? Mm-hmm. And then we all win. To your point, Earl, and to my point, we all win. The community wins. Because um, well, now when young people are seeing people um, that look like them working in these firms or in these agencies, they can say, hey, besides, <laughs> besides this is, Besides just going to college, I have another avenue to go and, and work in. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, we've, we've seen it just re- recently with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. You know, uh, Howard University has got a big bump just for the fact that, you know, they've got a grad that uh, is, is just happens to be the first female vice president and a lady of color that went to Howard. Uh, she's opened up a, a lot of doors. She's um, no, she's kicked in a lot of doors. Uh, so, so I love it. Well, you know, Eli, look, we've been talking here for, you know, about 45 minutes or so, and it's been a great conversation. A lot of good stuff shared. I hope, uh, all entrepreneurs listen to this have really kind of picked up on some things. Um, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to touch on yet that you would really like to leave listeners with? Yeah. I, I, one of the things I want to, I always, I would like to leave with this. One of the things that helped me out, right, um, when I was growing my business is um, we have what's called, one of the, it's called community hiring, right? And, um, you know, so the reason why we do it is because it's, um, we had a bunch of turnover early on in my business um, years. And I couldn't figure out why. Cause I, I was like, listen, I interviewed this person and they stayed with me for a year and then, I made the decision to hire them and they left or they stayed with me four years or whatever. So what we did about four years ago is uh, we started this practice called community hiring. Community hiring basically is this. Um, every person, whether they're a janitor within the company, a demolition guy, a carpenter, or coming in as a form of management, no matter what level, they have to go through five interviews when they come aboard, right? And... It's not just five interviews with myself as the CEO, but it's five interviews with everyone within the company, right? Not everyone, but five different individuals within the company. And then we all get together, Earl, and then we all compare notes. What that does for us is, first for the employee or the potential new employee, um, their first day for onboarding, they already know for one, five different people within the company. So their first day in orientation, they feel like they're already part of the community, they're already part of the family because they went and they met different people within the business. Um, For us as um, business, uh, within the business, if one person says no, they didn't interview well, and four people said yes, they did interview well, um, we know not to hire, right? So we that person, that potential candidate, has to go five for five, so to speak. He has to knock it out the box um, with all five of us, and then um, you know we we can onboard him and bring him on into the company. And so, if someone ever now at this point, someone leaves the company, we all share their you know in their failures or the company failures because he didn't stay with the company. But if he stays with the company. Now we're sharing his success because we can all say, listen, we brought this guy on. You know, he's moved in the company and twice in the first three years. And now look where he's at. And it's really helped us. And now our retention rate rate within the company for keeping employees is at 92% since we started implementing these changes, right? Mm. So um, for me, and, and I don't, and if you, you're a small business, say, of four people and you're just, or an entrepreneur and you only have, say, three employees, have your friends hire them or interview them, right? Have some family member interview them. They don't have to work for your company, but if they know your vision for your business, anyone can do the interviews, right? But try try that, right? Try to do community interviewing, and I guarantee you, you'll see your retention rate for keeping employees will will go dramatically up because it has worked. And, and, and I, I just wanted to share that with you, Earl, and for your listeners, that is a little tidbit. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I love that. And just just to be clear, because I want to make sure I heard you right, um, th- these these four or five indi- uh, individuals, they interview that person individually by themselves, not sitting around a conference table all at once, right? Correct. So one week he's interviewing with, so it's over a period of five weeks. So this, so we know if this person really wants to come and work for our company because it's not a quick hire, right? Mm-hmm. So it's usually it's five or six weeks spread out. He comes a one-on-one interview with each, each individual, and then I'm the fifth one that interviews him. So they, he has to make it through. He or she has to make it through four interviews, and they make it to me, and you know they have to get passed on, right, from one person to the next person. I love that. That is a great idea because you know I mean. Uh, it kind of turns traditional hiring kind of on its head because, you know, like the, the reason I wanted to make sure I was hearing you right is, you know, I'm used to seeing, you know, four or five people interviewing the same person at the same time. I really love that idea that that, that is an outstanding uh, piece to leave folks with because, you know, that goes a long way. And I like the fact that they have to go five for five because, um, you know, I mean, that goes a long way to solve so many problems in hiring right now from, uh, you know, like you said, just a retention piece. I mean, if you can impress all five people, you know, that's a pretty good sign. Uh, but I'd imagine it goes a long way to to help promote uh, more diverse hiring as well, because, uh, you know, those those biases don't have to have a chance to really kind of creep into the group thing. So I, I think that's a stellar way to hire. I, I love that tip. And folks, I hope you uh, write that down and, and adopt that practice of community hiring. That, that was valuable. Thank you. That's worked for us. It's been incredible for us, you know, because uh, everyone seems to think, or not everyone, a lot of people would be like, oh, I'm a great interviewer or I'm a great interviewee, right? But if you're the interviewer, if you're interviewing someone, you really don't know. You see a resume in front of you. That person could shine in front of you for an hour. But, you, you know, and then you're left with, okay, I think I want to hire them, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to hire them. You know what I mean? And it doesn't. And then after six months, they leave your company and you're like, wow, it didn't work out. Right. So um, when people tell me I'm a great interviewer. I can interview people with it. I look at them and I just roll my eyes. I'm like, listen, don't, why would you want to take all that responsibility anyway on yourself? Yeah. Share that. Share that responsibility with people within your company so that we all can embrace in this person's success. Right. Or we all say, no, this he showed up for me. It's supposed to be at one. And he showed up at one o five, right? You know, so we were even write down that that information as well, Errol, on our on our interview sheets. Like, what time do they show up? How are they dressed? How do they answer these questions? So everybody comes up with their own set of questions, um, and, and then so and then we compare notes, at, you know, and then we we make a decision based on that. And this this worked phenomenally. Um, it has been phenomenal for our success. No, I like it. I guess I got one last question. This is just a curiosity side in me. Uh, do, do all people ask the same questions or does each person come up with their own questions? No, nope. each person comes up with their own set of questions. Mm, I like so it. even so, you know, uh, for instance, a, a demolition guy, because we, we still perform demo. Um, demolition guy, if we were interviewing for administrative assistant, I mean, he can only ask questions that he knows that was specific to his skill set in the field, right? So he would ask questions about to her that I, whatever he feels is appropriate, you know, um, to ask that. So uh, we review those questions and we write them all down and, and compare notes. But everybody comes up with their own set. Uh, we review them, uh, you know, and make sure they're appropriate. And then we go from there. No, I love it. I love it. That is a that is a great way, a very innovative way of, of hiring. So uh, congratulations on that. I think that's that's superb. Um, well, you know, Eli, uh, you've shared a lot of great information with us, and we've had a lot of uh, good conversation. And that last, you know, five, ten minutes or so there about the community hiring is, you know, maybe the some of the most valuable I think I've had on the show. I love that. Um and hopefully, you know, listeners are kind of bought in and especially the uh, uh, want to know more about you, what you do, what your organization does, and, you know, more about the, the My Dreams Summit. So what are some ways that folks can uh, can find out more about you and maybe reach out and make contact if they, they want to bring you in to speak or they want to attend the summit? Sure. Um, 
if you want to attend the summit, the website is www.mydreamsummit.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram. My Instagram page is Eli Smith, E-L-I-S-M-I-T-H-C-E-O. And then my LinkedIn page is Eli Smith as well. Um, you can also email me at Eli at E Smith Contractors. So it's Eli E L I at E Smith S M I T H Contractors. The word contractor but plural with an S at the end. Dot C O M. Outstanding, and I'll have uh, I have links to all those in the show notes, so folks can just click on them and and go right there. But uh, you know, folks, take advantage of this. If you can attend the summit, uh, give it give it a shot. Uh, reach out and take a look at all the good stuff that Eli is doing. And, um, you know, kind of a, a pre-plug here, but uh, you were telling me in the uh, uh, in the spin-up conversation of this, you, you got a book coming out uh, in the future. I don't know if it's near future, but I'll say in the future, right? Yes. So uh, James Peterson, uh, a professor at Temple University, um, good friend of mine, is also a good friend. I met him through Michael Eric Dyson, who's also one of my good friends. Um, Dr. Dyson, as we all know, is on CNN, MSN. Um, so he brought me in with uh, James Peterson. So after a few conversations and um, going to dinner and doing what we do, <laughs> having you know some late night talks, um, he reached out. I was like, Eli, I just want to share your story, write a book out of it. At first, I thought he was joking. He was like, no, listen. Um, the building blocks of success is what we need within the business world, especially, he said, he feels it within the black and brown communities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from a high school kid that, you know, turned his life around and, you know, played football for a year down south, you know, and, and then just came home. And so I, you know, I had many, I can't say my whole life was one of, of, of success. But, you know, because of having children and understanding, listen, I got to do the right thing. And, you know, I did understanding and, and, and asking the right questions, you know, when I'm around different individuals, help me find my pathway to success. Right. Mm-hmm. So he, he wants to put all that and bottle all that up into a book and the book will be released. We're going to try and get it released for the Dream Summit. But I think because of COVID, it'll probably be by the end of 2021. Oh, I love it. All right, listeners, again, uh, you know, thank you very much for uh, spending, you know, about the last hour or so with Eli Smith and I. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and, uh, you know, walked away with, um, you know, a better understanding of, of a few things, especially around uh, entrepreneurship and, and diversity and inclusion and taking risks. I think it's been a great conversation. Make sure you take advantage of those links uh, that will be in the show notes. And uh, just educate yourself a little bit more about uh, what Mr. Smith and his organizations are doing. And, you know, that community hiring piece was was brilliant. You know, consider adopting that. And uh, I would imagine if you're well, he gave you his uh, email address. If you have any questions about that deeper, reach out to to Mr. Smith and, and ask those questions. As for me, if you have any questions for me, you know, burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. I really appreciate your time uh, being with us. I appreciate you all taking the time and effort to go out and rate, review, and share the show on all the social media accounts and uh, everything that that are helping this show grow and get great messages like Mr. Smith's uh, spread far and wide. Uh, Look forward to to seeing you continue that and help him share his message. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. 
subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.